I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Hey everyone, it's Jamie. I'm excited to announce that I'll be hosting a worldwide digital experience on Sunday, March 5th, 2023. And you don't even have to leave your house to enjoy the show. You can watch it on your computer, your TV, or other device. Tickets are available now at moment.co slash murderish. That's M-O-M-E-N-T dot C-O slash murderish. So save the date, Sunday, March 5th, 2023 at 5 p.m. Pacific and go to moment.co slash murderish to get your tickets now and take advantage of early bird pricing. I'm so excited about the show and the after party immediately following the event. It's all happening on Sunday, March 5th, 2023. Head over to moment.co slash murderish or just go to murderish.com for tickets. I really hope to see a lot of you there on March 5th. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. How far does family loyalty go? Most of us would do anything to protect the ones we love. But where do we draw the line? Keeping dark secrets is one thing. Helping to cover up a serious crime is an entirely different thing. In late June of 1996, Delaware politician Thomas Capano put his youngest brother Gerard in an impossible situation. The married father of four stood to lose everything if his affair with the governor's secretary came to light. Tom decided the only remedy was murder, but he desperately needed Gerard's help to pull it off. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish, 
Join me as I walk you through the complex case of Anne-Marie Fahey. This case takes us to Wilmington, Delaware. The city's modern history is rooted in its Irish and Italian-American communities, which grew substantially in the 1950s and 60s. Situated on I-95 between Philadelphia and Baltimore, Wilmington is a smaller city, so residents are often connected in some way. As crime author Anne Rule described it, it would seem that keeping a secret in Wilmington would be akin to whispering it to a tabloid reporter. The Capano family was full of secrets. Their long history of privilege and power often worked in their favor, until it didn't. Louis J. Capano Sr. embodied the American dream. He was an Italian immigrant who built a construction business from the ground up in order to support his young family. Louis Sr. was still an apprentice carpenter when he met Marguerite, another Italian immigrant. Only 20 years old when they got married, the couple lived frugally while Lou established his business. As deeply devout Catholics, they planned to have a large family. The young couple soon had a lot of mouths to feed. First came their only daughter, Marion, in 1944. Five years later, their three sons, Thomas, Louis Jr., and Joseph, were born in close succession. While the boys each had very different personalities, their proximity and age meant they were very close. In 1962, when Marguerite was nearly 40, she had a surprise pregnancy resulting in Gerard's birth. The big age gap between Gerard and his older brothers had him constantly seeking their approval. Louis Sr. went to great lengths to ensure his children had the best life possible. He knew he couldn't do it alone, though. His livelihood really took off after 1947, when Louis Sr. partnered with fellow Italian-American Emilio Capaldi. Lou's strength was in manual labor, while Emilio was a master architect. Together, they formed the Consolidated Construction Company. After World War II, the demand for housing skyrocketed. New families flocked to Wilmington to work at the DuPont Company, the state's largest employer at the time. Polymers developed at the multinational chemical manufacturer revolutionized American industry. The mass migration to Wilmington meant business was booming for Capano and Capaldi. Lou often had his boys assist with construction projects, instilling in them the value of a hard day's work or so he hoped. According to the Washington Post, the family company built most housing in middle-class North Wilmington. Lou's success meant his children lived a life of growing privilege. The Capano children all attended private Catholic schools and were given expensive sports cars in high school. Oldest son, Tom, was the golden child of the Capano family. He attended Archmere Academy, a private Roman Catholic high school with a tuition of several thousand dollars a year that also happens to be the alma mater of President Joe Biden. Tom's classmates remember him as being charismatic, well-liked, and a high academic achiever. After graduating in 1967, Tom attended Boston College, where he majored in political science. 
Following graduation, he actively carved out a powerful career. While his brother, Louis Jr., became head of the family company, then known as Capano & Sons, Tom was carving out a name for himself in Wilmington society. Tom began his legal career as a public defender, working his way up to the city solicitor before landing positions with several respected legal firms in Wilmington. He was also heavily embedded in the community. He served as board member of the National Conference of Christians and Jews, was chairman of the Wilmington Parking Authority, and served on the board of trustees at Archmere Academy, as well as several other exclusive prep schools. In 1971, Tom met Kathleen Ryan, a pediatric nurse who everyone called Kay. They wed in June of 1972. Over the course of several years, they had four daughters. While Kay and Tom were incredibly wealthy, they shied away from flaunting it. According to Anne Rule's book, And Never Let Her Go, by the early 1990s, Tom was worth around $4 million. Unlike his siblings though, Tom and his wife didn't drive flashy cars or own beach houses on island destinations. Perhaps they wanted to raise their daughters with down-to-earth values. In 1990, Tom received a career-changing offer. Mike Castle, then governor of Delaware, asked Tom to be his chief legal counsel. Tom was ambivalent about the proposal. He was a vocal Democrat, while Castle was a Republican. He also had several other job offers on the table, from law firms offering twice the salary of the governor's office. But Tom had his sights set on getting back into public service, and the governor's offer would take him in that direction. Tom accepted the position with Governor Castle, counseling his office on the constitutionality of pending state legislation. In 1992, Tom accepted a managing partnership in the Public Finance Department at the Wilmington office of Philadelphia-based firm Sal Ewing, where he served as bond counsel for both the city and the entire state. It was during his employment at Sal Ewing that Tom met 28-year-old Anne Marie Fahey, the scheduling secretary for the governor who took office after Castle. Anne-Marie Fahey came from a humble working-class background. Born on January 27, 1966, she was one of six siblings in an Irish Catholic family. Both parents were Irish immigrants who married young and had children born a few years apart. Despite serious financial issues, Kathleen and Robert Fahey worked hard to give their two daughters and four sons a comfortable life in Delaware. Kathleen had worked as a DuPont plant secretary before staying at home to raise the kids. Robert worked as an insurance salesman, earning income that was barely enough to raise his large family, but somehow they got by. In reflecting on their childhood, Robert Fahey Jr. told Anne Rule, most of us kids were two years apart. Our house wasn't that big and it seemed like there was never enough money. Anne-Marie, or Annie as her close friends called her, was the baby of the family. Like Gerard Capano, Anne-Marie's birth was unplanned. All of her siblings were at least five years older than her. This made her extremely close with her mother. While the other kids were in school, little Annie stayed home with Kathleen. When her mother was diagnosed with lung cancer in 1974, 
It was especially devastating for Anne-Marie, who was just nine years old. Her mother clung to life until March of 1975. Then, everything seemed to collapse in the Fahey household. Robert always had a slight drinking problem, but alcohol became his crutch after his wife's death. Excessive drinking made him prone to angry outbursts, adding constant tension to the grieving household. Robert's habit became so bad, he stopped working and began living off insurance payouts and pension plans for a time. Luckily, the Fahey children received help from others. Their grandmother, Catherine McGettigan, traveled from Medea, Pennsylvania to clean the house and cook once a week. At the same time, Wilmington's Irish community rushed to their aid with meals and brought light into their lives with Irish dancing lessons. It wasn't an easy childhood by any means, but somehow, Anne-Marie made it through. She graduated from Brandywine High School in 1984 and enrolled at Wesley College in Dover that fall. Anne-Marie worked her way through college. Numerous part-time jobs included retail work and waitressing, but the overexertion led to debilitating bouts of depression. When Anne-Marie stopped attending classes, her siblings stepped in to take care of her. With the help of psychotherapy, she pushed through and re-enrolled at Wesley. Two years later, in 1986, tragedy struck the Fahey family yet again when Robert Sr. passed away from leukemia. It was a very difficult time, despite the children being estranged from their father for years. Anne-Marie coped with the loss by focusing on her future. One of Anne-Marie's professors recognized her strength in languages. Since she was fluent in Spanish, the professor helped to find a host family she could live with in Spain. This experience proved valuable to Anne-Marie. Her career took off after that. After graduating with a political science degree in 1992, she landed an internship in Washington, D.C. at the Organization of American States, or OAS. On weekdays, Anne-Marie used her Spanish language skills to translate documents for OAS. Weekends were spent driving two hours back to Wilmington, where she visited her siblings or grandmother in between waitressing shifts at TGI Fridays. The internship at OAS was only funded for four months, but Anne-Marie was intent on staying in D.C., the heart of American politics. A few weeks later, she interviewed for a secretary position with Congressman Thomas R. Carper, and she got the job. Three or four months into her employment, however, Carper announced to his staff that he would be leaving Washington to run for governor of Delaware. Anne-Marie was overjoyed when Carper asked if she might be interested in working on his campaign. Back in Wilmington, Anne-Marie gained the respect of her peers by tirelessly canvassing and answering phones. It was grunt work, but she had to start somewhere if she wanted to work in the political sphere. When Tom Carper was elected as Delaware governor in 1992, it was clear Anne-Marie had played a part in his success. It was an easy decision for Carper when he chose her to be his scheduling secretary. Anne-Marie's new role was an important one. She maximized Carper's strengths and ensured meetings aligned with his political objectives. The position made Anne-Marie feel empowered and hopeful. She was finally on the career path of her dreams, 
and in her beloved hometown near her family. Her life was really coming together. But as fate would have it, working in the Carvel State Building with Governor Carper was exactly what put her in harm's way. Do you know the total you're spending on all of your subscriptions? Most Americans think they spend around $80 a month on subscriptions, when in reality, the actual total is closer to $200. If you think you're only subscribed to a handful of services, you may want to double check. This is where Rocket Money comes in. Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill, is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills, all in one place. Over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about, and I was once part of that 80%. But don't judge me, many of us have signed on for a streaming service free trial, only to watch one show, and then completely forgot about it weeks later. But who wants to go manually unsubscribe from each platform or sift through their bank statements? Not me. Rocket Money makes it easy to quickly identify subscriptions for you in one app so you can stop paying for the ones you don't want. Simply find the subscription you don't want and press cancel and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. Say goodbye to long hold times on customer service and tedious emailing back and forth. It's seriously as easy as the click of a button. I'm really happy to be part of the over 3 million people who've used and saved money with Rocket Money. Rocket Money helps save the average person up to $720 a year. It may be only $5.99 here, $12.99 there, but those subscriptions really add up. I can't believe how much I was spending on all of the subscriptions I signed up for, and I don't even remember signing up for half of them. Thankfully, Rocket Money made it easy to fix that problem. Stop throwing your money away, cancel unwanted subscriptions, and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash murderish. That's rocketmoney.com slash murderish. Rocketmoney.com slash murderish. became acquainted with Anne-Marie in the spring of 1994, Tom Capano was working as a bond lawyer. He frequently visited the governor's office on business, and Anne-Marie was there to greet him. The bubbly, vivacious secretary felt an immediate attraction to the well-spoken older man. Anne-Marie knew Tom was married with children, but he claimed his marriage was on the verge of collapse. She was also aware of his accomplishments and deeply admired him. It started out as an innocent flirtation, but quickly blossomed into a full-fledged affair. Over the next two and a half years, there were out-of-town dinners, vacations to Virginia, and countless presents. Tom and Anne-Marie were caught in a cycle. She would feel guilty over the affair and break things off. Then Tom would pursue her with calls, emails, and flowers. It wore her down and she'd take him back. As reported by Medium, Tom was a skilled manipulator who would tell Anne-Marie he needed her 
and promised he'd leave his family for her. He threatened if she wouldn't take him back, she would need to return all the presents he ever gave her. Anne-Marie knew this relationship could not carry on. The stress of a secret affair with a powerful man triggered an eating disorder to resurface. She also longed for something more stable. Only a handful of close friends knew about the affair, but they all encouraged her to end it once and for all. She tried to cut off the relationship completely in the fall of 1995. At that time, Tom and his wife Kay had separated and he'd moved into a rented house. He claimed to have done it all for Anne-Marie so they could finally be together. She had no idea there were other women in his life. Rather than strengthening their relationship though, the separation only motivated Anne-Marie to keep Tom at arm's length. He was infuriated to be relegated to friend zone status after everything he'd done for her. One of the reasons why Anne-Marie began to emotionally withdraw was meeting a new love interest. In September of 1995, Governor Carper played matchmaker and set Anne-Marie up with Mike Scanlon. He thought they'd get along famously. Both of them were young, ambitious, successful, and Catholic. Mike Scanlon was a rising star at MBNA, a large financial institution in Wilmington, where he was the director of community affairs. He often passed through the governor's office to coordinate grants from MBNA to local nonprofits. The pair hit it off, and though they'd been dating for a little less than a year, the relationship seemed to be headed toward marriage. Anne-Marie was more determined than ever to break off her illicit affair, planning to dump Tom the next time they had plans. She naively hoped to remain friends with him since they were tied to the same social circles. On the evening of Thursday, June 27, 1996, they met for dinner at Ristorante Panorama, an upscale waterfront restaurant in Philadelphia. It was the last time Anne-Marie would be seen alive. No one in Anne-Marie's life knew anything had gone amiss at first. Jill Morrison, an aide to the governor who was close friends with Anne-Marie, had seen her at work on the 27th. Jill later told investigators she didn't know if her friend went out that night, but she knew Anne-Marie was taking the next day off to indulge in some much-needed self-care. On the evening of Saturday, the 29th, Anne-Marie and her boyfriend Mike had plans to meet her brother Robert and his family at a restaurant. When his sister didn't show up, Robert knew something terrible must have happened. Robert called his older sister Kathleen to let her know. When they still hadn't heard anything the next day, Kathleen decided to do her own investigating. She had a spare key and decided to enter Anne-Marie's third floor apartment, accompanied by Mike Scanlon. Anne-Marie's car was parked outside, but once Kathleen got inside, nobody was home. Everyone knew Anne-Marie was compulsively neat and organized. So Kathleen was disturbed by the sight of her sister's dress draped over a chair and rotting vegetables on the countertop. She found Anne-Marie's purse in the kitchen, but her set of keys was missing. The one suitcase Anne-Marie owned sat untouched in the bedroom closet, so this hadn't been an impromptu vacation. At that point, 
Kathleen decided to notify police. While she and Mike waited for officers to arrive, Kathleen continued to look for any indication of her sister's whereabouts. She combed through the living room hutch where holiday cards from Mike sat. Then she noticed a pile of handwritten letters. Though the first one she picked up wasn't signed or dated, Kathleen knew it wasn't from Mike. The handwriting was very different from the other keepsakes. Kathleen skimmed the letter. According to the book, Fatal Embrace, the letter ended with, all I want is to make you happy and to be with you. I love you. Letters piled beneath it were written on stationery with the heading, Saul Ewing, LLC. Kathleen said to Fatal Embrace author, Chris Barish, reading those letters was like a kick in the stomach. This was not a part of Anne-Marie's life we knew about. The Fahey siblings considered themselves very close and had taken on the roles of parents to Anne-Marie in the absence of their real parents. It was now abundantly clear she'd hidden a major part of her life from them for quite a while. Kathleen's concern escalated toward anxiety as she gave up on Wilmington City Police, who didn't seem to be coming. According to Anne Rule's book, Kathleen recalled, I waited for what felt like an eternity, and they didn't come, so I called Ed Friel. The Friels were close family friends with countless connections to nearly every resident because of his local pub, O'Friel's. It was one of the city's most popular drinking establishments, the epicenter of Wilmington nightlife. In fact, Kathleen had dated Bud Friel at one point. His brother Ed happened to work as Secretary of State for Governor Carper. When Kathleen told him what was going on, he made a few phone calls. Within minutes, two state policemen arrived at Anne Marie's doorstep. Detective Robert Donovan and Lieutenant Mark Daniels led the investigation, joined by Delaware State Police Officer Stephen Montague. Because there were no visible signs of foul play at first, the investigation was handled as a missing person case. Colleagues, neighbors, and loved ones were interviewed to establish a timeline of Anne-Marie's last known appearance. It hadn't taken a ton of effort to connect Tom Capano to Anne-Marie. A review of Anne-Marie's emails revealed the illicit affair between her and Tom. Investigators decided it warranted a deeper probe into Capano, especially since emails indicated they were meeting for dinner on the night she was last seen. Detectives drove to Tom's rental house located in Wilmington's Highlands neighborhood. It happened to be less than a mile from Anne-Marie's apartment. According to the book, Fatal Embrace, when asked about the evening of June 27th, Tom said he had picked Anne-Marie up around 6.30 p.m. After dinner in Philly, they stopped at Tom's to grab a bag of groceries and a dress he bought her. Then he drove Anne-Marie back to her place, unpacked the groceries and headed home around 10. Tom claimed he hadn't seen or heard from her since. To detectives, Tom came across as nonchalant, pompous and unconcerned. As quoted in Fatal Embrace, he told them, you know, she was kind of airheaded and very predictable. She also said she was unhappy at work. 
Tom added that Anne-Marie and her sister Kathleen had been involved in a serious argument earlier in the week, as if to explain why her phone calls had gone unanswered. Although his demeanor was cold and dismissive, investigators didn't have evidence of Tom playing a more sinister role. They continued exploring other avenues, puzzled by the lack of answers. Over the next few days, the Fahey family distributed flyers all across the state, hoping tips might pour in. The close-knit community clung to the hope that Anne-Marie would resurface, but each passing day cast an ominous cloud over the case. Twelve days into her disappearance, family and friends held a vigil. It was attended by Governor Carper, who said to the New York Times, our hopes are dissipating that she might be found safe. That's a hard thing to come to grips with, but we're very much discouraged right now about her safety. In a short span of time, the case went from dominating local news to garnering national interest. Due to Anne-Marie's connection with local government, then-President Bill Clinton took note of the case and offered aid in the search. By mid-July of 1996, the FBI had joined the investigation. FBI agents formed a task force made up of local officers, agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, or ATF, and IRS investigators. Over the next year, they steadily built a case against Tom Capano. Despite their power in the political and business spheres of Wilmington, the Capano brothers were no strangers to legal infractions. According to the Washington Post in 1988, Lewis Jr. had been granted immunity for cooperating in a corrupt campaign finance probe. Their brother Joseph had also pleaded guilty to misdemeanor charges of sexual assault in 1991, which resulted only in probation. Up until the time Anne-Marie Fahey went missing, Tom Capano had never been accused of any wrongdoing. He had a beautiful family, abundant wealth, and a highly respected career legacy. In reality, however, he was far less virtuous than he seemed. Detectives discovered Tom had a history of infidelities, and Anne-Marie was just one of them. One mistress who came to the forefront was Deborah McIntyre. Debbie had been involved with Tom for over 15 years, more than half of his 26-year marriage to Kay. Debbie was the ex-wife of Tom's former legal partner and happened to be friends with Kay. Investigators perceived the long-lived affair was one major strike against Tom's moral character. Detectives pored over Anne-Marie's diary entries, which helped tremendously in painting an intimate picture of her relationship with Tom and how it progressed. Her writings would eventually be printed in local newspapers and shared by media outlets. An irrefutable invasion of privacy, but a pivotal component of this case. Entries detailed the relationship from start to finish, exposing an ugly side to Tom's dazzling public persona. As quoted by Medium, after a breakup attempt on April 7, 1996, Anne-Marie wrote in her final entry, I have finally brought closure to Tom Capano. What a controlling, manipulative, insecure, jealous maniac. For one whole year, 
I allowed someone to take control of every decision of my life. The diary entry provided a first-hand account of Tom's diabolical nature, strengthening suspicions the task force already had. Anne-Marie's friends who had known about the affair spoke of Tom's obsessive behavior. At one point, Anne-Marie even accused him of stalking her. Investigators began delving more into Tom's brothers, Louis and Gerard. They knew how close-knit the Capano siblings were and wondered if they were protecting Tom in some way. In the days following Anne-Marie's disappearance, Wilmington police had interviewed Lewis and several of his employees. They learned Lewis had arranged for a trash pickup at one of the construction site dumpsters days ahead of schedule. They didn't think much of it then, but the timing was a red flag. In another example of suspicious timing, Tom Capano's bank records revealed that soon after Anne-Marie was reported missing, he had purchased a new couch and rug for his rented home. It was just another breadcrumb trail that rubbed detectives the wrong way. In August of 1996, a federal warrant was executed to search Tom's home and family vehicles. The only major finding was a small drop of blood on the baseboard in the living room. It wasn't enough to implicate him in a criminal act. The case eventually went cold until investigators set their sights on Gerard Capano. In October of 1997, there was an ATF raid on Gerard's home. Agents uncovered small amounts of marijuana, cocaine, and a well-stocked gun cabinet that was left open. The youngest of the Capano brothers was threatened with charges of weapons and drug possession. Gerard bargained to have these charges dropped in exchange for some information about his brother, Tom. Valuable testimony that would crack the case wide open. In January of 1996, Tom told his younger brother, Gerard, he was being extorted by a man and a woman. He hinted the situation may have to be resolved with violence. So when Tom showed up in Kay's Jeep Cherokee on the morning of June 28th, Gerard asked his brother if this was about the extortionists. Tom nodded and asked his brother to get a hold of his boat. Tom didn't have much nautical experience. He was prone to seasickness. Eager to help his big brother, Gerard climbed into the Jeep Cherokee. They stopped at Tom's house to retrieve a large igloo cooler, the kind sea fishermen use to store their daily catch. The cooler was locked with a large heavy chain and Gerard chose not to ask any questions about its contents. After struggling to lift the cooler into the Jeep, the men headed for Stone Harbor, New Jersey, where Gerard owned property and kept his boat docked. The brothers sailed 60 or 70 miles into the Atlantic, and about two hours later, Tom asked his brother to stop the boat. With immense effort, Tom pushed the cooler overboard. When it didn't sink, he shot a hole in the side, but soon it resurfaced. Tom then tied an anchor around the cooler and watched as it slowly disappeared beneath the ocean's depths. According to Gerard's statement, as cited by the Washington Post, he alarmingly spotted a human foot and part of a calf sinking into the water. 
Once back from the sea outing, Tom asked his brother for one more favor. He needed help hauling a stained sofa to a dumpster at one of the family's construction sites. It was the same location where Lewis had arranged for a spontaneous trash pickup. Before parting ways, Gerard said Tom had coached him on what to say about the incident if he was ever questioned. For 16 months, Gerard had diligently kept his brother's secret. To detectives, the relief he felt upon confessing was palpable. Two days later, Lewis came forward. He admitted to investigators that Gerard had told him about the cover-up a year earlier. When he found out, Lewis confronted Tom and begged him to turn himself in. But Tom thought he was untouchable and continued to deny any involvement. Now, his own flesh and blood had completely given him up. But without physical evidence, would it be enough for a conviction? A few days later, on November 12, 1997, Tom Capano was taken into custody near the Philadelphia airport. According to the Washington Post, surveillance teams worried that Tom was trying to flee. It turned out he was just dropping off his brother Joseph for a flight. Tom was held without bond at Gander Hill Prison. When news broke of Tom's arrest, a local fisherman named Ken Chubb reached out to Wilmington police. More than a year earlier, he'd found a large empty cooler adrift at sea. Though it was empty, a bullet hole marred one side. At the time, he'd patched up the hole and used the cooler to store his daily catch. But when he read about the details of the case in a local newspaper, he knew the cooler was tied to Tom Capano and he wanted to turn it in for examination. The fisherman had discovered the cooler off Indian River Inlet, almost 100 miles from where it was pushed overboard. The fact that it was even recovered at all seemed like a sign. Anne-Marie wanted her murder solved. Along with the tide of news coverage the next day came reactions of complete shock and horror. Anne-Marie's family learned the details of Gerard's account at the same time as the rest of the country. Instead of being granted space to grieve, the Fahys were pressed for comment. Robert said to the Washington Post, losing your parents, there are words for that, but having your kid sister murdered and dumped over the side of a boat, I think that's what happened. There aren't words for that, there shouldn't be. Attorney David C. Weiss gave a statement on behalf of the family. He was quoted by the News Journal as saying, to say this has been an emotional day would be a gross understatement. The family has run the gamut of emotions from a sense of relief to absolute horror at learning what they learned today. Tom Capano maintained his innocence. Meanwhile, the family's legal team regularly met with federal prosecutors to lay out the strength of their case. They knew they had their work cut out for them. There was no body, no murder weapon, and no witnesses to the killing. State prosecutors weren't sure at that point if they wanted to seek the death penalty. According to the News Journal, under Delaware law, capital punishment could only be applied if certain aggravating circumstances existed in cases of intentional murder. This meant 
The state would need to prove Anne-Marie's murder had been premeditated in order to put the death sentence on the table. Gerard Capano's testimony was crucial, but they also had another witness come forward, Debbie McIntyre. One by one, Tom's confidants were turning against him. A February 1998 bail hearing only cemented his fate. State law dictates that bail can only be denied when capital punishment is deemed possible. At the time of the hearing, prosecutors were confident the heinous crime had been carefully planned out and it potentially warranted Tom being executed. The sensationalized high-stakes trial began on October 26, 1998 and spanned 12 weeks. It was held at the Daniel L. Herman Courthouse with Superior Court Judge William Swain Lee presiding. While the judge was known to support capital punishment, it would be up to a jury to decide if the evidence presented would yield a recommendation for the death penalty. Large teams made up of seasoned attorneys represented both sides. In opening statements, Prosecutor Ferris W. Wharton read segments of the victim's final diary entry and mentioned Tom's purchase of the infamous cooler and a gun. Anne-Marie's own words conveyed an intimate understanding of Tom's true nature, and the state vowed they would show the violence he was capable of inflicting. The News Journal quoted Wharton as saying, Tom Campano had determined that if Anne-Marie Fahey did not want to be with him, she would be with no one forever. In a bold move, defense attorney Joseph S. O'Terry acknowledged that Anne-Marie's body had been dumped at sea by Tom, but insisted her death had been an outrageous, horrible, tragic accident. O'Terry claimed, according to the News Journal, Tom Capano lied to everybody except one person who knows the horrible truth. But over the course of the trial, defense attorneys never really spelled out who this mystery person was. It was a tactic that could have elicited downgraded charges of second-degree murder or manslaughter, maybe even an acquittal. After all, the state lacked strong physical evidence that Tom had been directly responsible for Anne-Marie's death. Several key witnesses testified before a captivated courtroom. Both Michael Scanlon and Robert Fahey Jr. took the stand, reiterating how they were both completely in the dark about Anne-Marie's involvement with Tom. Then there was Debbie McIntyre, Tom's long-term mistress. She served as a witness for the state, despite jailhouse calls where Tom pressured her not to testify. On the stand, Debbie dropped a bombshell. In May of 1996, just six weeks before Anne-Marie was reported missing, she'd purchased a 22 caliber Beretta handgun at Tom's request. He told her he needed it for protection. But according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, she hadn't seen the weapon since handing it off to her secret lover. When Debbie was asked about her whereabouts the night of June 27, she had a confirmed alibi of being home with her two teenage children. Debbie's testimony was contradicted by a surprise witness, Tom Capano himself. Against the counsel of most criminal defense lawyers at any murder trial, the defendant took the stand. He delivered eight days of lurid testimony. 
It was a clear display of Tom's ego over that eight-day period. On the stand, the former lawyer described the accident alluded to in his legal team's opening statements. According to the News Journal, Tom testified that Debbie McIntyre showed up to his house unexpectedly on the night in question, threatening to commit suicide. When Tom lunged for the gun, it accidentally discharged, firing a fatal shot that took Anne Marie's life. The defendant's account was a far-fetched soap opera scenario that few people believed. Prosecutor Colm F. Connolly said to the Philadelphia Inquirer, it's ludicrous, it defies common sense, it's not believable. Unsurprisingly, Tom painted himself as a caring lover turned supportive friend on occasions when Anne Marie tried to break off their relationship. He testified about covering the high costs of replacing a shattered windshield on her car and offering to pay for an eating disorder treatment program. It also seemed that Tom considered himself a bit of a playboy. He said on the stand he hadn't really been upset when Anne Marie began dating Michael Scanlon. According to the News Journal, Tom boasted about dating eight or nine women at the time. Of course, Anne Marie's closest friends said Tom had the opposite response. He was fiercely jealous of the new man in her life. His behavior turned from infatuation to intense harassment. Weeks into the trial, the large white igloo cooler referred to as Anne Marie's coffin by prosecutors was exhibited in the courtroom. Credit card records indicated Tom bought it weeks before the crime as a gift for his brother, Gerard. Prosecutors felt certain though, that this purchase was a strong indicator of premeditation. Defense attorney Joseph S. Oteri argued, this theory had absolutely no merit. Why would a man planning the murder of his secret mistress use his own credit card at a local store to buy a cooler he would stuff the body into? As quoted by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Oteri quipped, Tom Capano's a bright guy, that's insanity. Prosecutors theorized Anne Marie had been killed the night of the 27th after dinner, and Tom had the cooler ready in his trunk. Cross-examination turned grim when Tom was asked how he fit a five foot, 10 inch body into a three foot, eight inch plastic cooler. As reported by the News Journal, he claimed to put Anne Marie's body in a fetal position and crammed it inside without breaking any bones. The jury would need to determine the plausibility of Tom's statements. The fact that Tom admitted to handling the victim's body, but continued to deny involvement in her killing was mind boggling to the press. In closing arguments, defense attorneys harped on this being a case of accidental death. They also tried to completely discredit Gerard Capano's testimony According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Oteri said, Gerard had a brain like a fried egg because he was a boozer and a druggie. He was a typical screwed up rich kid who never had to earn anything. He's a poster boy for the me generation. He told the jury the state's case was based solely on circumstantial evidence. Prosecutor Connolly went down swinging, urging jurors to do the right thing and return with a guilty verdict. Prosecutors believed they had proven that Tom shot Anne Marie in a fit of jealous rage when she refused to resume the affair. 
as quoted by the Philadelphia Inquirer, Connolly stressed, this is a murder case, but ultimately this is about control, about who would control Anne-Marie Fahey and who would control her destiny. If found guilty, this case would mark the first time in Delaware history that someone was charged with first-degree murder without a body being recovered. A murder weapon has also never been found. A 12-member panel of six women and six men were initially divided on their vote. Over the course of three days, the jury reviewed FBI affidavits, police testimony, and prosecutors' theories on what transpired. In a 2019 News Journal article reflecting on the case 20 years later, juror Aaron Riley Lee disclosed what detail tipped the scales. Another member of the jury, around the same height as the victim, climbed into the cooler. Though she was able to cram inside, it was impossible to close the cooler's lid. Horrifyingly, the jury realized this meant the defendant must have maimed or dismembered the body to shut the makeshift coffin. This was the only explanation, which meant Tom Capono was a lying manipulator who was arrogant enough to think he could get away with it. On January 17, 1999, the jury panel returned to the court with a guilty verdict. At a March 1999 sentencing hearing, Tom Capano was sentenced to death by lethal injection. While the jury had been unanimous on Tom's guilt, they were not on the same page regarding the death penalty as a sentence. This is why a January 2006 appeal prompted the Delaware Supreme Court to commute his sentence to life in prison without parole. In 2000, the Fahey family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Capanos. It was settled outside court for an undisclosed sum. As reported by AP News, neither of Tom's brothers served prison time for their role in the murder cover-up. Gerard Capano, who had agreed to testify against his brother Tom in exchange for a lighter sentence, received three years probation for withholding information about a felony. Louis Capano had been charged with tampering of a witness, but also struck a deal for his testimony. On September 19, 2011, Tom Capano was found dead in his cell at the James T. Vaughn Correctional Center. An autopsy revealed the 61-year-old had suffered cardiac arrest for callously taking the life of his 30-year-old mistress. He'd served less than 15 years in prison before escaping in death. Anne-Marie missed out on being married, raising a family, building a career, and countless other milestones, all because she got involved with a man who would rather kill than have his social status blemished. Several books have been written about this landmark case. With all of its intricacies, it's easy to understand why the case continues to be analyzed and discussed. Prosecutor Colm F. Connolly, who went on to become a U.S. District Court judge, never tried another murder case. He reflected on the Capano case to the News Journal by commenting, I do believe this case served as a model for the principle that no one is above the law. No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how well-connected you are, when the justice system works, you will pay the penalty for criminal actions. 
Hopefully, Anne-Marie's loved ones have found some peace in knowing even Tom Capano could not get away with murder. To this day, Anne-Marie Fahey's body has never been found. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to save the date for the worldwide digital experience that I'm hosting on Sunday, March 5th, 2023. Tickets are available now at moment.co slash murderish. That's M-O-M-E-N-T dot C-O slash murderish. Or you can go to the Murderish website at murderish.com and get details for the event there and buy tickets. You guys, if you'd rather listen to Murderish ad-free, check out Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon, where you can get access to all episodes with no ads, as well as bonus content and other cool perks. To sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic, just go to murderish.com or go to patreon.com and search for Murderish there. I want to give the biggest thank you to Heidi W., Christina F., Karen B., and Annie G. for joining Murderish Behind the Mic. Thank you all so much. I am really looking forward to interacting with you on Patreon. Oh, and did I mention, on the evening of the show I'm hosting on March 5th, 2023, all Murderish Patreon subscribers will get into the after party for free that night. Visit Murderish.com for details and tickets. For those of you who don't know, I host another true crime podcast called Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild story that even has ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening right now. There are a bunch of episodes for you to binge right now. You guys do me the biggest favor and tell your friends about Murderish or leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. You can also show your support for the show by wearing a Murderish t-shirt while you're out and about. And trust me, it's a great conversation starter. Go to Murderish.com to buy t-shirts, bags, coffee mugs, and so much more. Don't forget to follow Murderish on Instagram and TikTok at Murderish Podcast. Both platforms are a great way to get to know me better because I do a lot of funny videos, short true crime stories, and everything in between. And I also love engaging with you guys there, so check it out. Murderish sound design and audio editing is done by Pod Machine with oversight by Emily Crane of Cloud 10 Media. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.